welcome to Flyline Podcast, where we enjoy the interesting stories behind the legendary guides and luminaries connected to Maine fishing. I'm Michael Jones. Today, we'll be talking with our special guest, Bob Romano. Bob Romano is a decorated author of many books surrounding the experience of fly fishing and a fly fisher's life and observations. Bob was born in the Bronx and has a career practicing law. For the winter months, Bob and his wife Trish live on 12 wooded acres in the Kittaninny Mountains of New Jersey. In the summer, they have spent the last 40 years living at the family camp on Aziskahas Lake in western Maine. That has allowed Bob to enjoy and share his experiences there through his writing. Many outdoor writers concentrate on the how-to aspects of fly fishing. Bob prefers to examine why we fish while using the rivers, lakes, and streams of Maine's great north woods as his literary canvas. Bob Romano's most recent book, River Flowers, is a collection of short stories about wild fish, the places that they're found, and the people who seek them out. He is also the author of the Rangeley Lake series of novels, North of Easy, West of Rangeley, and Brook Trout Blues. North of Easy took second place in the 2010 New England Outdoor Writers Best Book Contest. His latest novel, The River King, is also set in western Maine. Bob's wife Trish often adds artwork and photographs to illustrate her husband's writing. She is an accomplished artist and trained scientific illustrator. The couple's daughter, Emily Rose Romano, has contributed a number of watercolors to her father's most recent book. Bob is a frequent contributor to Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine and Midcurrent, the online fly fishing magazine, and writes columns for Northwood's Sporting Journal and Skylands Magazine while doing his best to keep up with his blog, which can be found at ForgottenTrout.com. It is my pleasure to introduce today's special guest to the Flyline Podcast audience, Bob Welcome to Flyline Podcast. Hey, Mike. Good to be here. Well, Bob, it's great. I mean, I've heard your name. It's a it's a it's a household name in uh, Maine in fishing writing, and I've heard so much about you that it's just a wonderful opportunity to finally have you on the podcast and to try to get to know you a little bit better and allow the audience to do the same. Uh, Bob, let's start right from the beginning. I always like to do that if you don't mind. Uh, how did you get started in fly fishing, and was there anyone who was influential to you? Yeah, I'll tell you, my dad was an avid uh, fly fisherman, uh, I'm sorry, an avid fisherman, uh, fished with spoons and lures. He was also uh, deadly with worms. Uh, and I grew up in the 50s, uh, and I had a spinning rod in my hand all that time. Uh, when I went to college, uh, that would be in the 60s, uh, I read Richard Brodigan's uh, Fly Fishing in America, which really had very little to do with fly fishing. Uh, but the title caught my attention, and I started reading some books about fly fishing, and went out and got a seven-foot uh, Fenwick fiberglass rod um, and, and tried my luck. And for the first two or three years, to be honest, I didn't catch a damn trout, and I would throw it back in my car and get the spinning, spinning rod back out and did that for a while, uh, but eventually caught my first trout, and from then on in, I, I was hooked on, on fly fishing really didn't have anyone uh, uh, that was around to, to teach me uh, fly fishing. Uh, right. I kind of just learned it on my own. And has it been that way, or have you ever taken instruction? No, it's pretty much been, been that way. I haven't had any, any instruction at all. Um, you know, I, I, I have learned from um, gu- different guides and, and um, uh, other folks that I've met, especially uh, in Maine, uh, who I've just gone fishing with, and you just can learn an awful lot by having a you know a buddy uh, out there with you. Yeah, that's always the case. You learn from the people that you spend time with. Being a guide myself, I I always maintain that I'm not a smart person. I'm just experienced because I've been surrounded by a lot of experience. Um, but so I can picture you back in college, Bob. Where were you fishing? Uh, where were you starting out with your pursuits with a fly rod? Yeah, so um, uh, I went to school at Villanova in in uh, southeast Pennsylvania. Uh, so I was actually fishing those, those southeasterly streams, those truck streams of uh, uh, southern Pennsylvania. Uh, and then when I returned home uh, to suburban New Jersey, uh, I, I was only an hour and a half away from the Catskills. So I found myself uh, fishing uh, the Beaver Kill and, and a lot of those uh, Catskill uh, streams. And, and that's pretty much where I learned my fishing would be in the Catskills. Yeah, excellent. I um I know that there's a, you wrote a, an essay called The Christmas Trout, and you talk about fishing up in that area with your father. Uh, could you maybe just give us a narrative uh, interpretation of that story? Because I think it really illuminates a, a transition we all go through. Yeah, I mean, that was a fun story to write. Um, so 
uh, you know, my dad uh, was in the Navy during World War II uh, and uh, basically a blue-collar guy who fought his way into, into the middle class uh, coming from the Bronx and, and moving to suburban New Jersey. And, uh, you know, I look back at, at it now and, you know, my dad's hard work made it uh, 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 available for me to go to, to go to Villanova. Well, meanwhile, I'm in Villanova and my hair is down on my shoulders and I come back with a fly rod uh, and he had never seen a fly rod. And he kind of looked at that as if that was an affront to his way of life. It was just one more way that I was uh, uh, kind of, you know, uh, getting up on him. Uh, I didn't feel that way. Um, but um, I didn't like my father's politics. So there was a lot of tension there while the Vietnam War was going on. So eventually, um, uh, we, we held a truce ourselves, and we went up to the Atrium Lodge on the Beaverkill River, and he's fishing with worms, and I'm fishing with a fly rod. And um, there was actually a Hendrickson hatch on, and I had no idea what Hendrickson's were. I just saw these big bugs on the water. And up until then, I really hadn't caught uh, many trout. Um, and um, I put on a nice bushy fly, and suddenly uh, I, I, start, I start catching fish. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I look down at my dad, uh, and he's, he's kind of using his worms, and he's not doing so well because those trout were, were looking up. Um, and uh, he, he stopped fishing, and he's got a cigarette in his mouth, and he's got his, the bill of his hat is down over, kind of over his brow. And I remember he had a daredevil uh, lure hooked to the brim uh, of that of that hat, and um, I decided that he was really angry with me for 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 catching those fish. Um, and um, the way I wrote the story uh, was to say, um, I'm fishing a stream on Christmas, and I'm thinking about all this. I'm thinking about th- this particular incident, uh, and suddenly I realized that under the bill of that cap, my dad was smiling. Uh, and he was smiling because I was catching fish. Um, and, of course, after that weekend, uh, we, we were uh, father and son again and uh, loved my father dearly. Uh, he passed a couple of years back. And in my, my den uh, where I do my writing, uh, I've got a picture on a wall. And it's of my father with that cap and the daredevil um, right. pin, you know, in, in the in the. Uh, so those are the type of stories that I that I like to tell, as opposed to, as you said, the, the how to uh, sort of work. And that's what that's what fishing can do. Uh, they can, can bring a father and a son uh, together. It did the same for my family, uh, Bob. I spent hours with my father, and same thing. We started out with worms on uh, the trout streams, and then uh, together we learned how to fly fish. Our neighbor was a fly fisherman. And he taught us how to uh, cast and to tie flies. And ultimately, we also had a Penobscot Indian as a neighbor. And he knew a lot about fly fishing. And he would take us up to uh, places to fish around uh, Eustis and whatnot. And we really got better at it with experience. But the most, the, the great part of the story you just told is that the, the way that fly fishing builds connections between friends and family. And sometimes it can break down barriers like you just described with uh, the barrier you had between your father and yourself. Um, so... Uh, now I'm very interested because you cast such a, a large shadow in Maine. What was your first experience in Maine? Well, I'm not sure how I discovered Bozebuck Mountain camps back in the mid to late seventies. Uh, but somehow my wife and I found us, uh, found ourselves up at the camp for a week. Uh, that was back, uh, when Tom Rideout was the, was the owner of the camp and, and Tom was a hell of a character. Um, and, um, I became really good friends with Tom during, during that week. Uh, and we came back the, the following summer. And at that point, my wife and I were married. We hadn't been married in the first uh, trip and we were just so taken, uh, with kind of that dark, almost foreboding beauty, uh, of, of Western Maine, uh, that that winter, uh, we decided we wanted to buy a camp on the lake, and, and we couldn't find one that, that was available. We were going through the listings. So we kind of gave up on that and decided, well, let's, let's check out the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. Uh, that, that's a pretty wild uh, uh, region of the country, and maybe we could find a camp there. And we got in touch with a, with a real estate broker, uh, and we're in her office, which uh, this is in the middle of the winter. Uh, snow's coming down. There's snow drifts everywhere. Uh, and we're at her office, which was her living room. 
and she's serving us uh, hot chocolate. My wife, by the way, was six, maybe seven months pregnant uh, with our uh, uh, daughter. And we're going through these listings, and we get to page seven or eight, and there's a listing for Aziska Haas Lake. And I said to the broker, wait a minute. Uh, this is in Maine, isn't it? She says, yeah, yeah, you don't want to know about that. Uh, that I, I'm listing that for a friend of mine, uh, but I've got this great place up the road, blah, blah, blah. I said, no, 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 no. I said, you just sold us uh, the camp that we want. And we bought that camp on a photograph without without seeing it. Uh, we signed the con- We put a down payment down, contract, signed the contract, bought this place without ever seeing it because it was, it was on the lake. And that spring... Um, I packed my my uh, my black lab buck at the time, my wife and my six week uh, old daughter uh, into a Toyota pickup truck, and we drive nine hours up to Maine to see our new camp, and that was the first time that I saw it, and that was our int- introduction to the state. Yeah, and that that leads us right into a, a question that I wasn't going to ask. So tell us about the story of walking into a camp that you bought sight unseen. What was it like opening the door and? You know, what was the first impression? Because sometimes these camps well, can be not can not be what you originally anticipated. <laughs> we, we lucked out. Uh, the the folks that we we bought it from uh, were really wonderful. Uh, they were an elderly couple, uh, and we were just kids. You know, my wife and I, and yeah. um, they of course they're shocked. We walk in with this six week old daughter. I thought the I thought the the, the fellow's wife was going to have a heart attack, and. Um, um, they had laid out cold cuts and a bottle of champagne for us, uh, and, and the cabin was in great shape. Uh, it really was. I, I, I would have no complaints. I mean, it wasn't anything fancy. Uh, the, the, the cabin's on Aziskahas Lake. Uh, you know, they, none of them have electricity. Um, basically, plywood, is, plywood would be the interior walls and, and, and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, we, we, we kept that camp uh, for, oh, maybe 25 years, 20, 25 years. Uh, we bought it, by the way. It was not on leased land, like as many camps are. But it was in the middle of the lake. And I'm a fly fisherman. So I would either have to drive a half an hour down the logging road to get to the lower McGalloway, or I'd have to drive a half an hour up the logging road to get to the middle section of the McGalloway uh, to, do, to do any fly fishing, uh, which was okay for a young man. But about 20 years into it, uh, and 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 the cabin was on a on a on a bluff, so you had to walk down a very steep trail to get to the lake. Um, uh, the boat that I had at the time never came up to the cabin, and I would I have to haul my outboard up and down, and I'd have to haul my pump that we pump water with up and down this trail. So about fifteen years ago, I looked at my wife and I said, "How many years?" more years do you think this old man is going to be able to carry this stuff up and down the trail? Maybe it's time we look for another camp. And we, we lucked out. We found a camp at the top of the lake that just has a nice uh, walk to the lake. Uh, it's, it's on a cove facing south. Um, and, and it's a similar cabin, but it's just easier to, ma- to maintain. But we have no electricity. We use a generator to pump our water, and we've got gas gas lights with a propane stove and a propane uh, refrigerator. Uh, no internet service, no landline, no cell phone service. Uh, about the only communication we have is the radio, and about the only station we get is the CBC out of uh, uh, Montreal. So um, it's kind of like like the uh, you know living back in the in the uh, the twenties and thirties, and not much has changed. No, and I'm very jealous hearing you say that because it's just <laughs> so wonderful to unplug from the world that we live in today where technology basically rules our lives. And uh, that must be wonderful for you and Trish to be able to unplug and spend the whole summer. When do you go up there in the spring? Well, I have to admit I'm part of that, that um, May madness. Uh, you know, when the smelts are in the river, uh, I want to be on the river too and, and go after some of those trophy fish. So we usually get up there uh, maybe, a, maybe a few days to a week after ice out, and we'll spend uh, uh, maybe two weeks up at camp. Uh, we'll, we'll stay in camp until the black flies get pretty bad, and then we'll come back home. Uh, we like to come back up J- July 4th week. If I can spend all of August up there, I will, and then the last week of September. Which is just absolutely gorgeous. You know, I mean, if you ever go into Western Maine, um, 
second week of September through the second week of October, you just it's there's not many people around, or there was didn't used to be, but the foliage is incredible. The fishing is fantastic, and uh, it's just a great time to be out. There's no bugs, and uh, the fishing is great. Um, so I'd like to talk a little bit about your legal work too, Bob, because um, I understand that your firm takes on unique and underserved takes on a, a unique and underserved population. Can you share with the audience the kind of legal work is inspired you to in your firm? Yeah, I'll tell you when I when I started practicing law, as most uh, young attorneys will do. Um, yeah, you basically sit in an office and you take on the files that you, that the uh, the senior partners give you. So, um, uh, as an attorney in a small law firm in suburban New Jersey, I was doing drunk driving cases, uh, divorce cases, house closings, uh, and I have to tell you, it just was not not satisfying work at all. Uh, my grandparents were immigrants from from Italy. Uh, my parents taught me to respect the less fortunate uh, because they're but for the grace of God go I uh, and so uh, I after about 10 years in I created my own law firm and uh, we represent the elderly the disabled uh, and the mentally ill uh, and their caregivers um, and that's really all that we do uh, and I've been able um, I don't I don't make a fortune you know I'm not a corporate lawyer uh, but uh, I make a good living and I'm, I'm able to help these folks and uh, I have to tell you, you know, when my clients come into my office, they, you can almost see the dark cloud o- over their heads as they walk in. And their s- shoulders are slumped. Uh, their eyes are darting around because they don't trust attorneys. And uh, by the time they leave, there's a smile on their face. And I'm able to say, we're going to get you through this. And it's very satisfying work. Yeah, I know this is unscripted, Bob. Is there any chance that you have, without using names, but... Can you just for share with our audience a kind of maybe a single experience that you might have had in your career that really made an impact on you? Maybe you helped someone out in a very unique way. Um, let's see. We uh, <laughs> we um, we represented um, three retired school teachers, uh, uh, siblings, two sisters and a brother, and uh, they never married. And they lived in two condominiums. The two sisters was in one condominium. The brother was next door. And um, they were elderly. And the brother uh, had dementia and needed to go into a nursing home. And the sisters were were fearful uh, as to how they were going to pay for that. We were able to qualify the brother for Medicaid benefits, uh, which the government pays, uh, and that allowed him to go to a quality nursing home. We referred them to a nursing home in the county, and they were able to take care of their brother. Uh, when the brother passed away, the, 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 the one sister, she, she fell into dementia, and the two sisters living together, uh, they, the, the sister that was well did not want her sister to go into a nursing home. And so we found a way uh, for those two sisters to live together uh, and get care at home. Uh, once again, through the Medicaid program, uh, when the second sister died, uh, I, this, this is a this is maybe a ten or fifteen year period. Uh, we represented that third sister when she passed away, and we were able to administer her estate and probate her will, uh, and and get her assets over to um, um, nieces and nephews and other family members. So uh, I was able to have uh, a history with with these three people over maybe a fifteen year period. Uh, and we got to know them pretty well, and we were able to to help them with 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 those sort of problems. And that's a uh, that, that's a pretty typical uh, case. Uh, many times we work with the disabled, uh, and the disabled will have um, uh, they're entitled to certain benefits, but they'll lose those benefits uh, if they uh, receive money. So sometimes somebody's on the benefit, and they inherit money. Or um, many times they'll be walking across the street and they'll get hit by a car. Uh, and uh, uh, some, some lawyer will bring a lawsuit. And after the lawsuit is over, that lawyer realizes this client's going to lose her benefits because I brought the lawsuit. What, what do I do? Uh, and then they'll come to us and there are ways to both protect the money by putting it into a special type of trust, and they can keep their benefits. So that's another type of case that we deal with on a pretty regular basis. So you're doing meaningful legal work. You're doing things that help people out. You're not just uh, trying to cash in on opportunities as they come in. You're actually able to, to help people out in a meaningful way. 
I like to tell folks that uh, we're, we're the good guys in, in the legal profession. We're, we're, we're 50% social worker and 50% lawyer. Yeah, well, that's great. And, and that's actually, I should say, at law school, I trained to be a social worker. Um, and uh, I was a child care worker uh, for, for two or three years. Uh, and when I realized that um, you just can't make any money in social work. Um, and if you want to have a family, and if you're going to be the bread earner, um, that's a pretty tough way to go. And so I found a way through law kind of to, to, to almost be a social worker. Yeah, and I think also through law, Bob, you figured out a way to become a writer. Yep, yep. Well, it, it's, it's, kind of the, it's kind of a little bit the reverse. Um, so out of college, I wanted to be a writer, but I had absolutely no life experience whatsoever. And, and you know, God forbid if you ever saw anything I wrote out of college, it was kind of just dribble. Um, so I, I looked around and, and decided, you know, well, what, what, what could I do? And for an Italian in suburban New Jersey uh, there's all, uh, who went to, went to college, there's only three things you can be, and that's either a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant. Well, every time I added up two and two, it came to five. Uh, I'm a little squeamish around blood. So I said, well, you know what? Lawyers deal with words. Uh, they, they write briefs. Uh, that's what I'll do. I'll, bec- I'll become a lawyer. And I went, I went to actually law school at night. So uh, I fought my way through four years, and that's really how I became a lawyer, was, uh, was the best, next best thing to being, being a writer. Do you practice law in other states other than New Jersey, Bob, or are you just in New Jersey? No, it's, yeah, it's, all, it's only in, in New Jersey. I'm licensed to practice in New York, but I have a tough enough time figuring out how to practice in New Jersey. I figure I might have better stay with the one state. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Bob, what, once you uh, were settled in Western Maine, can you share with uh, what were some of your first pursuits with the fly rod? Where did you start to kind of bang around back in the 70s? When I came back uh, to New Jersey before, uh, you know, going to Maine, um, uh, you know, I, I fished in, in the Catskills. I, I fished uh, in, in Pennsylvania. Um, uh, my wife and I made a few trips up to Nova Scotia, and we, we fished the rivers and streams of, of uh, Cape Britain. Um, I even spent uh, two weeks in Ireland and uh, fished under the shadows of castles that go back to the 13th century, uh, caught some brown trout in the stream that John Wayne crossed in the movie uh, A Quiet Man. Uh, and they actually have a little sign on the bridge over that stream that says Quiet Man Bridge. That's how I know. But um, by the time I made it up, up to Maine, I, I really was not yet an accomplished fly fisher. And I remember uh, anybody who, who uh, has fished in Western Maine probably knows the name of Tom Rideout. And, and, and Tom owned Bozebuck Mountain Camps. And I remember him looking at my knot from my fly line to my leader. And back then, we didn't have loop-to-loop connections. And he just said, you know, what in God's name is that? I mean, that, that knot must have – I have no idea what type of knot I used – and um, so Tom showed me, you know, the proper connection between fly line and leader. Uh, and he began to really show me around uh, um, that area of, of Western Maine. And he, he never wanted me to use a guide, uh, even though he, he was a master of Maine guide and he had guide, guides in his service. He would just take a napkin out and he would draw a map and say, you know, you go from this fir tree to this rock to make a turn on this logging road and you'll end up in a spot that only the Abenaki Indians know about, which of course wasn't true, but the guy from New Jersey would, you know, took it on faith. So um, uh, I, I basically fished up and down the McGalloway River from um, almost its source uh, all the way down, you know, past Route 16 and the dam, uh, uh, all the way down almost to the to the Adriscoggin. Uh, and that became my, my playground uh, in, in the 70s. I fished Upper Dam. Uh, I fished the Cassuptic River, the Kennebago River, the Rapid River. You know, all those places with those iconic, those pools and runs with all those iconic names. Um, and, and that's where really I was fishing uh, for, for 70s, 80s, right up until the present time. Bob, how would you uh, describe the fishing how, as it was then, as to how it is now in terms of, I mean, back then the regulations were a lot more open. Uh, people were fishing with artificial lures in a lot of the places you just described, but now it's really fly fishing almost exclusively. Is it, do you notice it's getting better or worse, or what, what do you, what's your take on that? I mean, we all know that 
there's more people uh, now, you know, fishing uh, uh, this area of Maine. Um, so, uh, you know, th- 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 there, there is a greater fishing pressure. But uh, I honestly believe that, that the fishing is better now. If, if, if uh, the, the fish are larger and the fishing is better now, as far as I'm concerned, than, than it has been uh, at least since the 70s when, when I've been fishing. Now, maybe that's just because I'm getting better at it, right. uh, but, but I, I don't think so. I, I think that the, um, uh, the, the quality uh, of, the, um, of the fishery uh, has, has improved. And even even with the with the crowds uh, that that we encounter, I mean, in the '70s when I would fish below Ziskahas Dam in that in that parking lot there by the hydro tube, um, if I saw another car uh, parked there, that was too crowded. I mean, I would just get in my car and drive away. You know, I, I, if I saw another fisherman, I was annoyed. And obviously, that's not the case now. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm regularly, we, we have a log at our camp, uh, the 16 inch and over, uh, uh, club. Uh, so anybody that catches a fish 16 inches or over, you get your name in the log and what, you know, what, what fly did you use and, uh, you know, uh, whatever. Um, and you know, back in the seventies and eighties, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, you might catch one or two. Uh, fish that were 16 inch and over in a period of a couple of days. Now, quite frankly, you know, we're catching them almost every day. And also, um, um, not only the size of the fish, uh, but we're catching, we're catching more fish. So something's going on. I, I, I couldn't tell you what it is. I don't know why the fishing is better, but, but that, 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 that's my sense. That's really great to hear that, Bob. Now, uh, I can picture you when you first started out. You're probably just working with a dry fly. I mean, can we attribute it to? I mean, what 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 does Bob Romano do when he goes fishing? Do you carry s- nymphs and streamers and fluorocarbon, or you just stick with on the top? Well, I tell you what, I, I think the deadliest pattern that that you can use um, for brook trout or landlocked salmon are wet flies. I almost hesitate to tell you that my my go to pattern. Maybe I won't, but. Um, I can use that go-to wet fly, uh, and it, it's just a matter of depth. Uh, and I don't need to use any other fly all season long. I mean, if, if, if I wanted to, and I, I believe I, I'll catch fish. When I was younger, I would have two rods, you know, one with a sinking uh, a line and one with a, with a dry fly line. Um, uh, I, would, I would have a vest with 20 different boxes of flies in it. Uh, I'm, I'm too, just too, too old and lazy now. Uh, and I, I use... Um, sinking leaders with ah. the loop to loop yeah with the loop to loop con- connection it, it's just so easy i don't even have to remove my fly so i i can use the same wet fly and and once i figure out the depth uh, uh I'm, I'm good to go and the other thing that i've discovered you know when you when you're fishing down south you know southern new england or or, or uh new hampshire or, or not so much new hampshire but southern new england and and the catskills uh, it's match to hatch time and you know you may be talking 22s and 24s and you have to have an absolute perfect drift um you can't have any drag at all um when i'm not in maine by the way i fished the west branch of the delaware river if you okay. want a master's master's degree and match the hatch try to try to catch those fish but I find that brook trout and landlocked salmon in western Maine, where the hatches are not prolific, um, it's the action on that wet fly. Uh, I can have a dead drift, and all I have to do is give a little twitch of that wet fly, and bam, I'm gonna, I'm, that fish is going to hit. Um, and and I, when I do give programs on, on western Maine, I mean, that's one of the pieces of advice that I give to folks is uh, you want to put action uh, uh, on on that fly, and sometimes even with a dry fly, which you know we're all taught with a dry fly, uh, you, you want a perfect drift. You don't want any drag. I find many times you have a, you have no drag at all, and the fish just aren't paying attention. You give that dry fly, even a mayfly pattern, a little twitch, and that that brook trout's gonna gonna nail it. So yeah, I fish I fish a lot with wet flies. Of course, I fish with dry flies. And in May, when the smelt are in the water, um, I, I'm gonna use my streamers like everybody else. And I just discovered a streamer. If anybody's listening, you know, to our podcast, this is the tip I'm going to give them because this streamer has been around a long time. You, you probably have heard of Jack Gartside. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Jack was a real character, a fly wow. tire, 
uh, of renown. And, and he, he came up with that soft hackle streamer. Um, and you think I would have known about this as sooner. I really just discovered it a couple of years ago. And I, I tie one up with all it is is white marabou. Uh, and and pa- pretty much palmered, uh, not quite, but um, it's it's an easy pattern. You can pick it up on the internet. Uh, and <clears throat> boy, I got to tell you, that is a killer fly, uh, a k- killer streamer uh, in May. I, I I used it last year, and I I, I was uh, stripping it across that that um, um, that pool below Camp Ten Bridge, and uh, I had three short takes. Uh, big fish coming up and trying to nail that fly. Uh, and and I, I just, I, to be honest with you, I, I thought I was going to pee my pants. Uh, and I missed all three. Uh, I, I threw it back in the pool, and, and I was able to catch catch one of those one of those large fish. Do you know Celine um, um, Dumaine? Very well. Uh, yeah, okay. So Celine happened to be on the bridge. And I'm looking up at the bridge, and I, I, I'm married and a very faithful husband, but I see this very attractive woman on the bridge, and she's, she's checking me out. And I'm saying, hey, you know what? For an old man, I must be doing something right. And I go back up, and of course, it's Celine, and Celine and I are good friends. And she was laughing, and she said, boy, you put on a pretty good show down there. So uh, I felt pretty good about catching that fish. And Celine is an incredible fly tire in her own right. Um, yeah, isn't she though? Yeah, she's fantastic. She's a great person, um, and so I think it's great to hear you say that. I'm thinking, Bob, this fly you're describing by Guardside is it the heron? Is that is it what the pattern's called? No, or, no, no. He know? he calls it a, a soft hackled uh, streamer. That's it. Um, right. I, and and it, it's it's basically um, he he uses um, almost a saltwater hook, um, and he and he. Um, Brings that marabou for maybe a quarter down from the eyelet, uh, and, and you're just bringing it, uh, not really pomering because it's really close, and and uh, you just bring it down about to, about to the middle of the hook. Uh, there's literally nothing in the back of the hook; it's just a hook, uh, yeah. and, and and that's pretty much. The, uh, uh, he uses um, a little um, uh, marabou. Uh, Was it? Fl- um, I can't think of the name now. A marabou flash. Um, I'm not using the right word. Crystal uh, flash. Crystal yeah, flash. crystal flash. A couple, couple, of, couple of lines of crystal flash with that marabou. And then I think he, 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 he puts a, maybe a wood dock feather in front. That's it. That's the fly. Uh, and, and anybody can, as I said, you can look it up on the Internet. The, the pattern is there. Um, and I got to tell you, it is a killer, killer fly. Uh, killer streamer. It really works well, especially in May. And it probably works great in September, too. Well, Bob, you'll probably have there'll be a, a, a million Google searches for this fly after people hear yep. this because uh, you know you know where I heard about it. Come to think of it, I want to give him credit. Uh, Lou Zambino um, uh, talks about that fly in in his programs, and he has it in one of his books. That's where I first discovered it, um, and then I went from there to to Jack's uh, website and started tying him up. Well, I'll definitely look into it and also share it with some of the folks that I fish with. Um, I think that we might be at a good spot to take a break, and what I'd like to do is come back after the break, Bob, and uh, talk to you a little, talk to the audience a little bit more about your first experience at the Rapid River, and then I'd like to spend the balance of time talking about your writing. Sounds good. This Flyline flashback is dedicated to the famous Maine fly fishing guide and outdoor legend Herbert Welch. Herbie Welch, the inventor of the still very popular streamer pattern, the Black Ghost, was a main guide who gained international status on many important levels. While not as well known as Carrie Stevens, the undisputed mother of the New England streamer, Herbie Welch's impact in Maine outdoor sporting in the region and other contributions are no less significant. Herbie tied his first streamers around the turn of the century, a fact he used as the basis for his claim of being the first person to tie streamer flies. True or not, the statement certainly adds weight to his mythical status. He served an important role in the development of modern-day long-shank streamer hooks. His initial streamer flies were tied on hooks reshaped from bluefish bait hooks, which he forged into a sleek shape that better served his needs of the smelt patterns he was creating. He recognized the need for long streamer hooks well before there were any commercially available. In many ways, Herb Welch can be considered the father of the New England streamer fly. Herb Welch arrived at nearby Haynes Landing in 1903, a skilled guide but not yet the legend he would become. 
In a season, he might catch 250 fish, all of which he released. But his fame was secured when he created the Black Ghost Streamer Fly in the 1920s and guided celebrities like baseball legend Ted Williams and President Herbert Hoover. Herbie Welch resided at Haynes Landing and was a true Renaissance man who excelled as a guide, an artist, a taxidermist, a flycaster, and a showman. He was a talented flycaster and set world flycasting records at Madison Square Garden. He also studied art in Paris and New York and sported a 400-plus batting average and a sparkling 937 fielding percentage as a semi-pro shortstop in baseball. It is reported that when asked to name the top two flies to use in the region, Herbie named Kerry Stevens' Grey Ghost as number one, and his own Black Ghost as number two, not insignificant praise from the inventor of the original streamer. It has been said that Herbert Welch invented the streamer and Kerry Stevens perfected it. Now, on to the second half of our episode. So welcome back from the break. Bob, uh, one question that I didn't ask, uh, but I want to know more about Trish. Uh, I I think there's got to be a story about how you met her. Uh, Tell me how that went. In New Jersey, uh, young uh, attorneys um, have an opportunity to clerk for a judge. It's a real coveted position. Uh, And I was lucky enough uh, to... Uh, get that position. So I'm clerking for a judge, uh, which basically means you write the judge's opinion, you sit by the judge's side during during uh, court. And I was really blessed uh, to have a judge who was a real human being and treated me like a human being. We would literally have lunch together and, and talk about every everything under the sun. And he, and he was a character, uh, like, like many of the characters that I write about uh, in, in Maine, um, and, uh, he was a practical joker. So, um, at the time we were handling a criminal case and the jury panel, uh, everybody from the jury room comes in and, uh, the, the lawyers now have to pick a jury. Um, and so they go through the panel, they pick their jury and now it's time for the, the jurors that were not chosen, uh, the nine jurors who were not chosen to go back to the jury room. So there's a very attractive uh, blonde, um, um, you know, sitting in the in the first or, or second row, and uh, my judge says he's looking at the list, and and he says, uh, uh, Miss Troop, would you please stand up? And I can see she's nervous, wondering why is the judge singling her out, and he says, you know, uh, Miss Troop. Um, it's time now for you and the other jurors to go back to the jury room. And I know that this is a very complicated building. Uh, and it's important for me that the jurors safely return to the jury room. So, Mr. Romano, would you please stand up? And I stand up. I'm looking at him. I have no idea what he's talking about. And he says, um, um, this young man here uh, is a very accomplished attorney. He knows the building inside out. Mr. Romano, would you go down and take Miss Troop's hand? Uh, and literally, I don't know what he's saying. I go, I take her hand. He says, now, I want you to escort Miss Troop back to the jury room. Juries, you're going to follow these two young people, and that way I know all's going to be well. All right, so I, you know, and I, I do this, and uh, I, I'm, I, I I, I don't know. I probably don't sound it now. I'm an older guy. I have a lot more confidence now. But I was a pretty shy young man, and I don't think I said two words to her the whole time. I get back uh, to the to the courthouse and uh, to the to the room, and uh, the judge says to me, "How'd you make out?" I said, "What do you mean? How did I make out?" I said, "I didn't make out at all. I I brought her down to the jury room." He says, "You dummy." He says, uh, I, "You know, I I, I you're, you're just a lost cause." So the next uh, maybe a week later, that that same jury panel comes in this time she gets picked as a juror she's juror number two and that was the day i was going to be actually sworn in as a lawyer up until then i had graduated from law school this was my first job i have to now go to the capital trenton the capital of the state to get sworn in my parents had this big party waiting for me and i look at them and said I can't go to a party. I've got to go back to the courthouse, you know, because judge, the judge wants me there. And it's very important that I be there. And my parents are looking at, at me very quizzically. So I go running back to the courthouse. I said, I'm, this is it. I'm going to get a date. I'm going to ask this juror for a date. And I get back in and there's nobody there. There's nobody in the courtroom. And I go bursting into the judge's chamber. Said, what happened? He says, the guy pled guilty. The case is over. He says, he says it, it's too late. You're not going to be, you know, she's gone. 
I, and and I go running down to the to the room where the jury panel is located, and she's still there. And I just said to her, "Hey, you know what? I think we should go out for a cup of coffee." Um, and that's how I met my wife. To this day, lawyers that I know, maybe I haven't seen them in a while, and I'll call them and they'll say, "How you doing?" And the first thing they'll say is, "They don't say how is Trish." They'll say, "How's juror number two? So that, that's how I met my wife. Has nothing to do with fly fishing, has nothing to do with Maine. Well, that's a great story, Bob, about meeting Trish. And uh, you both are, have struck, struck the lottery, I can, I can tell you. I mean, she's a striking woman, and you're a, clearly a, a catch yourself. Um, I, know, I know my friend and our friend Bill Pierce told me a really flowering story about the very first time he met you at the gate at the Rapid River. Can you recount that day? Oh, I sure can. So, um, I, I was writing my, my uh, first book of essays, Shadow in the Stream, and I, and I uh, wanted a chapter on the Rapid River. Uh, I wanted to be able to write a little bit about the, the, the river itself and uh, Louise Dickinson Rich, who uh, wrote uh, a number of, of books uh, about her time on the Rapid River uh, with, with her husband. So... Um, um, I, I uh, uh, Aldro French, who, who anybody in, in, in this region knows is one heck of a character. Uh, at the time, he owned um, uh, the Riches uh, property. Uh, and they, they had a winter house and what they called their winter house and their summer house. Uh, and he would uh, rent out the winter house, which was a one-room cabin. Um, and so uh, we had booked a long weekend uh, there and uh, in order to, get, if you're going to drive to the Rapid River, uh, you've got to go uh, uh, down a whole bunch of logging roads and you get to a lock gate. And uh, Aldro was supposed to meet me there, uh, let's say 12 noon or one o'clock, and I get there at the appropriate time and 15 minutes. And I'm there, by the way, with my wife and my six-year-old daughter, and it, it's uh, it was pretty hot out. Uh, and I have to admit, uh, I have very little patience, which doesn't, doesn't, isn't very, uh, isn't a good attribute for a fisherman, but, uh, there it is. So 15 minutes goes by, a half hour goes by, an hour goes by, and now I'm thinking about how I'm going to murder this guy, Andrew French, who I had only spoke to over the phone at the time. I didn't know him at the time, but how am I going to murder him when he finally shows up? And maybe an hour, an hour and a half goes by, and Bill Pierce, who at the time worked for the warden service, uh, shows up. Uh, I had never met Bill. Um, we subsequently became friends, but at the time I didn't meet him. And he shows up, and he kind of smiles at me. He says, you know, what, what, what are you folks doing here? And I said, well, I booked some time with, with this guy, Aldro French, and he hasn't showed up. And Bill just starts chuckling. And says, well, but that's Aldro French time. He said, you know, if you wait long enough, he'll, he'll show up at the gate. And then he, he, I guess he saw the expression on my face and said, uh, hang in there. Uh, I've got the key to the gate and, and I'll, I'll bring you down. So we come down and um, um, the, uh, the, uh, it turns out Aldro had double booked the winter house. So uh, I can't even get into the place because he's got a sport there. And he's very apologetic. And he says, well, he says, no big deal. And he tells the sport, come on in and you'll stay with me uh, in, 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 the, um, in, in the summer house, which is where he lived. And then we would have use of, of, the, uh, of the winter house. And, uh, you know, I, I'm just thinking to myself, is, is this the way things work in Maine? Uh, uh, yeah, I had never experienced anything like that in, in booking time in hotels and motels and, and whatnot. Well, it turned out. Uh, Aldro and I became very, very close friends over the years, and I, I got to know uh, uh, Bill as well. And um, I ended up, uh, I don't have it here with me now, but I ended up writing a poem called Waiting for Aldro French uh, out, of, out of that uh, experience. Well, as much as I love the guy, I can tell you that we've all walked down to, um, to the winter and the summer house a few times uh, from the gate because, uh, you know, it just didn't happen that he remembered to... Uh, Meet us at the, at the time, and he had a calendar, and he would write on paper plates, and you, you know, you, we both witnessed it. He was uh, definitely a colorful character. Um, I felt very honored to be able to go in and spend time with him, not only because of who he was, uh, and he thought very highly of me, and we enjoyed our time together uh, for many years. But uh, naturally, I had the, you know, the keys to the castle, the Rapid River, were right there below Lower Dam, and you can pick up the rod, and, and you're on one of the best native brook trout 
fisheries uh, in the United States, really. So, oh my goodness, um, yes, yes, yeah. And I really learned a lot by fishing in there because those fish are tough. And if you think yep. you're going to yep. catch one, you better be uh, you better be bringing your A game. Um, yep. So, Bob, let's segue into your writing because I think that that's something that really decorates who you are. Uh, you know, when when someone who hasn't read any of your work, when they pick up one of your books, and now we're not talking about your articles or, or contributions, we'll talk about that later. When they pick up one of your books, is it a biography? Is it um, is it fiction? What where do you, what what have you done? I want to start by saying a number of my books are now out of print. Uh, they went through uh, one and two and sometimes uh, three um, um, printings, uh, and uh, they're basically sold out. They're very difficult to find. The newer books are available. But um, my first book set in western Maine was Shadows in the Stream, and that was a book of essays. And it, it really um, – uh, it, it, it was it – was, you know, I had no idea – whether um, it was going to do any good, whether it would resonate with readers, whether people that live in Maine uh, were going to say, who's this guy from New Jersey? Who does he think he is, you know, writing about, uh, about our state? And uh, it ended up going through, uh, through uh, uh, actually four uh, printings. Uh, it's a book of essays. Uh, and every chapter uh, was an essay or a story about a different lake, stream, or pond. It brought in a lot of the, the rich uh, uh, sporting traditions of the region. Uh, there would be a chapter on Carrie Stevens. There was a chapter on Louise Dickinson Rich. At the same time as I'd be uh, uh, writing about the actual fishing uh, in, in the region. And um, there was even a 10th anniversary edition that Tom Wrightout wrote an introduction for. Um, uh, at one of the fly fishing shows, in fact, there was a fly fishing show in Marlboro, and I'm coming down on the elevator uh, from my motel room, and there are these two um, uh, older gentlemen with, um, you know, the main, um, war- they weren't wardens, but that main warden sporting shirt that, that you can purchase. So I knew they were from Maine, and uh, they, they flanked me on either side, and, you know, one guy looks at the other, and then he looks at me, and he says, uh, you the guy that wrote the book? And I, you know, I had no idea where, the, where this guy was coming from. And I said, well, you know, which book are you talking about? He says, that, that, that book shadows something. And I said, yep, yep, I'm the guy that wrote it. And he looks at his friend and he says, good job. Uh, and that's about the best compliment that, that I could have gotten from, from two guys uh, from Maine. Um, so that, that was the first book, this, this book of essays that's now maybe 15 years since it's been printed. Then I wrote this this um, trio of novels uh, that you had mentioned in the introduction, um, uh, North of Easy, uh, West of Rangeley, and Brook Trout Blues. And um, uh, it's basically the Rangeley trilogy, a lot of people uh, call it. And uh, it, 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 uh, the main character uh, is a, an Italian-American fly fishing guide. And uh, in the first book, um, opening uh, chapter... Um, you know, a young woman is traveling through Vermont uh, into New Hampshire and into the town of Rangeley. She's got a black eye, uh, and she's driving a, a, a beat-up old car with aura belongings in it. And then it's basically the story of these two people uh, with an interesting cast of characters uh, from, from the town. Uh, and at the time, uh, I, I said it in the town of Aquasic. Uh, which is right outside of Rangeley, uh, but I didn't want to use the name Okwasik, uh, and so I, I came up with the name Easy, E-A-S-I-E, and the play on words is North of Easy, meaning hard times, difficult times, uh, and of course people living in the region do have economic uh, difficult times. Um, West of Rangeley uh, takes place five or six years after the um, things that happen in, in, in North of Easy, and it's when we go into, into Afghanistan. Uh, the first chapter actually is 9-11, and uh, the, the, the main character, the fishing guide, uh, Salvatore D'Amico, uh, is actually in a canoe on the Kennebago on this perfect day in September, having no idea what was happening uh, in the rest of the country until he got home that day. Uh, And then the third book uh, is uh, Brook Trout Blues, which takes place uh, after the uh, financial meltdown and how a financial meltdown on Wall Street uh, would affect, uh, you know, people in the small town of Rangeley and Aquasic. 
Uh, and at the same time as I'm telling these stories, all the fishing that's taking place, and there's a lot of fishing, is, is taking places uh, in um, the pools and the runs uh, that, Mike, you certainly would know, and anybody who fishes in the region would know. So it's, 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 the, it's, real, it's the real fishing that you would be doing and the flies that they're using and, and, and uh, the type of uh, techniques they're using uh, is all brought into the novel, uh, novels at, at the same time. Um, the two books that, that are, are, are presently out are The River King and uh, River Flowers. So those first three novels were basically older uh, folks. The characters were, were people anywhere from your age, I guess, up to my age. A few young people, but mostly older characters. And I, I had wanted to write a book from the viewpoint of 20-somethings. Uh, and, and uh, you know, what... How would I have felt if I was a 20-something and I grew up in Rangeley uh, and my mother and father had to be working two jobs uh, just to barely make a living? So uh, I came up with four kind of tough blue-collar kids in their 20s. Um, and uh, the lead character has aspirations of being a, um, uh, a fly fishing guide. Uh, and his best friend is probably the best... Uh, uh, angler in the region. He also happens to be a drug dealer. Uh, the, the third kid is developmentally disabled, uh, but his friends take care of him. And the fourth kid uh, is, the, is the woman, uh, and I'm probably going to get in trouble for this, but uh, kind of the description of Thelma Louise uh, is when Harry says to his friend Gilroy, you know, Thelma was the first girl I ever went to bed with. And Gilroy looks at him and says, yeah, Harry, but half the town can say that. Uh, so these are four. <laughs> these, I said I can get in trouble for that. But these are four tough blue-collar kids. Um, and uh, how would they feel, quite frankly, when people like me, uh, who have a little bit of money, uh, are coming up to their region and are able to enjoy you know, that vast playground uh, of western Maine uh, when, uh, as I said, you know, these kids can, can barely make it by, you know, economically. Uh, and they know that they're not going anywhere. And, and Thelma Louise in the book, uh, every week she comes up with a different scheme to get the hell out. One, one day she wants to be a, you know, a beauty queen. The next day she wants to be a, a TV broadcaster. Uh, the next day she wants to be a hairstylist to the, to the rich and famous and just get out. And um, uh, Gilroy, of course, is a drug dealer. Uh, figures he's going to make his money that way. And the kid that want, Harry, who wants to be a fly fishing guide, and and and, and you know loves uh, uh, Thelma, uh, never wants to leave because you know he loves he loves the water. And Gilroy just hates people from away uh, because <laughs> when he was uh, <laughs> yeah when he was younger, uh, he he was into this you know uh, um, biggest fish he had ever, thought he was ever going to catch and, and, and two fellas from away uh, up on Parmachini who, who have one of those um, um, camps up there uh, basically said hey you, sh you shouldn't be up here son you don't have a camp and, and they distract him and he loses the fish and from that day on uh, he's got a grudge against uh, uh, other fishermen uh, from away so that, that's the story of, of uh, the river king and the question I guess is who is the river king is it that big fish that, that Gilroy uh, spends his, his life trying to catch? Uh, or is it, is it Gilroy himself, uh, who, who's one of the best f fishermen around? Uh, and, you know, readers got to figure that out for himself. But the latest book, um, which, which I think is my best writing, um, uh, is River Flowers. And it's a collection of short stories, uh, as you said, uh, I think, in the intro, about um, uh, wild fish, uh, uh, the places they're, they're found, and the men and women uh, who seek them out. Right. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I always thought in a naive sort of way, if you're a fly fisherman, we're all the same. Uh, and we're all good guys and good gals because we're fly fishermen. Well, you know what? That ain't the case. Uh, uh, we are all uh, different people. And we come from fly fishing for, uh, from different angles and for different reasons. And I will say that if you fly fish and you've done it for any extent of time, it is going to have an effect on your life. Uh, but all our lives are different. 
So in, in, in River Flowers, uh, I, I'll tell a story about a warden. I'll tell a story about an, uh, an owner of a, lo- of a fishing lodge. I'll tell a story from a sports perspective. Uh, I tell a story from the wife of the guide or the wife of the lodge. I'll tell a story about a poacher, um, and, and on and on and on, uh, and all how fly fishing uh, affects uh, the lives of, of all these uh, people. Um, I once I once gave a program on um, on, on writing, and um, in that program, I, I tried to explain uh, most artists, um, um, and I'm talking about uh, you know graphic artists, you know painters, uh, whatnot especially the, the great painters, um, they may paint the same scene over and over and over and over again. And, and, and you know, they're, they're coming at it when the light is different and they're coming at it to, just to get that scene perfect and they may never get it, get it uh, perfect. And I, I, I don't know about other writers, but I tend to have probably no more than three or four themes. Uh, and I approach those themes over and over and over again. Uh, one of the themes is getting older uh, and you know not being able uh, to fish in that lower section of the Megalloway b- below the bridge any longer uh, because uh, that current's going to knock knock the, you know the, the, the angler off off his feet uh, and uh, but but how can we still fish and and what do we get out of small stream fishing that we don't get out of out of you know large uh, stream fishing uh, so a lot of th- th- these these themes. Uh, or, or I've explored throughout this, this, this book of short stories. And m- my daughter, Emily Rose, uh, who's an accomplished artist, um, um, she did the cover and she, she, she gave, um, I, I want to say, eight or nine uh, watercolors uh, that, that illustrate uh, uh, that, that collection of, of uh, uh, short stories. If we've got a minute, uh, I'd like to tell you a story uh, which doesn't appear in, in the collection, but it's a story that's, that's uh, based upon uh, our daughter. Uh, I don't know if we have time to do that or not. Well, I just want to make a point, Bob, if you don't mind. Um, sure. I've sure. Had one, of, one of the people that really had an impression on me is also a guide, a little older than I, and he said, uh, one of the best characteristics about being a good guide is knowing when to shut your mouth. And I think I've done a really good job here the last 10 or 15 minutes of letting you explain everything. But before you tell the Emily story, I just want to do a, a, a quick throwback. Um, when you were talking about River King and you were describing the four characters in the uh, Rangeley area, I could put a real-life name to each one of those people. Uh, you know, the great really? angler who's, yep. who's poor, who's just a phenomenal, um, kind of like the Brad Pitt character on A River Runs Through It who can catch every fish and does it with grace. And then the drug dealer, uh, you know, Maine has got that all over the place, but especially in that area, you see a lot of it. And then, of course, the gal and and whatnot. But um, to that point, what I picked up from that, Bob, is you've actually grown to really become connected with that community. You're not just hiding away in your cabin. You've actually been able to integrate with the people in that area to get a sense of the fabric that makes makes up their lives. Um, I'd like to think so. Uh, You know, I... I, uh People from away, you know, uh, down here in New Jersey, will, will often say, um, "Oh, those people from New England, you know, they're they're kind of cold, and and uh, how, you know, how, how, why do you, you know, how, how do you get along with them and all?" And um, uh, you know, my feeling is, you show folks with respect, and 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 they're going to respect you, and that's true whether whether it's you know the fella that. Um, uh, is fixing my 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 Cervelle refrigerator, you know, turning it upside down and shaking it for me because it's not working, uh, or or the guy that may repair my roof, uh, you know, if it's leaking, uh, the fishing guide, uh, the guy in the gas station, uh, or, or wherever, um, and and that's the way I've always l- uh, lived my life, uh, and yeah, I've gotten to know an awful lot of people. Uh, in Rangeley and Oquasic, and and again, not just the fishing guides and the and the guys in the fly fishing store, but but the guy in the supermarket, the guy in the gas station, the handyman or whatever. And and I and I, I realize that most of the folks up there, they literally need you know two jobs. Um, and and a lot of those folks you never you never really uh, you know uh, you never see, I mean they're there and and yes I see them and and I relate with them uh, but but most people from away that that, that are on vacation uh, they, they don't see those people you know they walk right by them they don't notice them at all um, and uh, it, it's a, it's it's a tough tough living uh, it's a tough way to make a living it's a tough way to get by. 
Um, and so that was something I really, really wanted to write about, uh, and, and I guess celebrate to a certain extent. Uh, I think you did. I think you've done it, uh, Bob, for sure. Now let's go back to Emily because I think that there was something you wanted to talk about there. Um, uh, I think you'd, if you would, I'd like to have you decorate um, who Trish and Emily are in terms of their artwork. I mean, you just explained a little bit about Emily and her talent level, and, and she works with watercolors. Tell me about Trisha's background and, and Emily's background with a little more detail. So, so the women in, in Trisha's family, going back generations, were untrained uh, or uneducated artists. Uh, they just had the artist gene. She's got a great aunt who... Uh, we've got her, her her artwork, and it looks like the Grandma Moses type of artwork. Uh, her mother uh, is a marvelous artist, never never took a lesson in her life. Uh, Trish uh, uh, was trained as a scientific illustrator uh, and, um, again, has, has, has the artist's uh, gene. Um, Emily, uh, our daughter Emily Rose, went on, on partial scholarship, went to the Maryland Institute College of Art. From there, uh, she spent time abroad uh, in Europe, uh, traveled in Europe, and now uh, she is uh, the um, uh, creative um, director for a major advertising agency uh, in, uh, in, in Texas, um, and uh, really is a wonderful artist. I mean, she, she's really what ultimately uh, got me into writing, because um, when, when she was a youngster... Um, she would show us something and say, oh, here's a chapter from my book. And, and uh, you know, we'd say chapter 16, and it would be a full-blown chapter. And we'd say, what, what book is this? And it was a book in her head. Uh, and and she, she would think it through and then just decide, well, I'm going to put one of these chapters on paper. Uh, and you'd read the thing, and it really wouldn't need any, any editing. So she had both the writing gene and she had the art gene. And, and I said to my wife, you know, Having spent time in Maine, I now have this wonderful backdrop uh, where, uh, and I've got some stories to tell. Um, if I can get a book published, our daughter can see how it's done. Uh, and wouldn't that be great? And I remember when I went for my first book signing, I think three people showed up. Um, my daughter was there with me and smiled and said, Dad, when I publish my first book, it, it, it'll be in Barnes and Noble, and they're going to be around the block. And I said, you know, God bless you. You know, I can I can retire early. Let's ho- let's hope that that happens. But she was really the impetus for me to 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 uh, to start writing. Um, but in any event, um, uh, w- when she was younger and she had a Facebook page, um, you know, my wife and I live on a. Tw- I know we live in New Jersey, and people think of the New Jersey Turnpike when they think of New Jersey. But the northwest corner of the state is very rural. Uh, and we've got a, a little Cape Cod house on 12 acres of land. Uh, it really is a, a little a homestead. And when my daughter was young, uh, we took we, we looked at her home her homepage, uh, her I'm sorry, a Facebook page. And what does she say on it? Um, uh, I guess at this time she was about 18, 19, and she says, "Oh, when I was younger and living with my parents, it was like living with two hobbits in the Shire." Um, I took that as a compliment. I'm not sure if she meant it, meant it that way, but, um, having, having said that, uh, I now want to get back at her by telling you this story. So I want to say about a year after we purchased our cabin, it's, um, early May, a couple of weeks after ice out, it's probably 48 degrees. Uh, and, uh, this was our second year at our, at our camp. Our daughter is maybe one, one and a half, and I say to my wife, I'm telling you, the salmon are moving in the lake. We, we, we've got to get out there. And uh, we had a, a 16-inch square stern Grumman uh, with a five-horsepower engine on the back. So she puts Emily a year and a half in a red um, snowsuit. Emily looks like the Michelin man. Um, and we, we put her in the, in the bow, and we've got this 100-pound black lab Buck, and Buck is in, not in the bow, she's, in the, she's a midships, and, and Buck is, is behind her and, and, and kind of, uh, you know, keeping her warm, uh, and I'm in the stern uh, working the engine, and Trish is in the bow, and we're trolling streamers, and about the same time, uh, we both have salmon, we both get a hit at the same time, and just about then, uh, it starts to, to snow, and hail, and rain, all at the same time, and 
I look at my wife and she looks at me and we're trying to figure, well, who's going to give up on the fish and protect our daughter from the rain? My, my wife just leans over and uh, gives me the, the, the fly rod and with her other hand takes a garbage bag, a plastic garbage bag out of her, out of her knapsack, cuts a hole in the top, throws it over our daughter, picks up the rod again, catches the fish, and our daughter is just sitting there bobbing up and down in a, in a garbage bag with, with, with the, the rain coming down. So that, that, I, I don't know if that means my wife is a good mother, but it certainly means she's a good angler. Uh, and that's what our daughter had to put up with uh, for, oh, I don't know, 18, 20 years until she, she moved uh, to Texas. So that's my story about our daughter. That's a wonderful story, Bob. I appreciate you sharing it. It's funny. You're a funny guy. Um, well, so the other thing that people don't know about you, Bob, because that's really what the podcast is about, is to kind of unfold who uh, Bob Romano is. Uh, you do a lot of writing with magazines, like uh, Maine Boats, and Har- uh, Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine. I'm a big fan of them. I do read a lot of issues of it and have over the years. Um, do, you know, do you know Peter Bass at all? Do you recognize that name? I know Pete from, from the magazine. I, don't, right. I never met him. Yeah, he's a great guy. I've, I've known him for, yep. for a while now, and he's always been a big fan, and I'm a big fan of his. It's a pretty but, great magazine, don't you think? Well, it's, 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 it's really an awfully good magazine. What it does is it, it, it does something really unique. It, do, it brings something for everybody. I mean, naturally, it's, it's about, you know, you have to have some interest in nautical, and if you're in Maine, you know, you have yep. an interest in either the ocean or the lakes, so they, they take that tangent. And then uh, they just, you know, they do a great job with bringing people like you aboard to, you know, kind of create a, a really neat, a nice tapestry of what the, you know, what's going on maybe behind the scenes. Yeah, I've been doing their spring issue now, um, oh, I guess the last four or five years, I've been doing uh, uh, at least one article uh, each, each spring. Uh, and, and I really, I really like uh, uh, working with them. Um, they're, they're real professionals. You know, not all the magazines necessarily are, no. uh, but, but they do an awfully good job. Yeah, that's true. So you, uh, just for the audience sake, uh, I did introduce you. You do some, some writing for some other uh, publications. Just share with us what you've been doing over your career. Uh, yeah, Mid, Mid, Mid-Current, which is a fly fishing, uh, online fly fishing magazine. Uh, I, I write uh, pretty extensively for them. I mean, maybe once a month uh, 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 they'll publish an article of mine. Um, and um, the Northwood Sporting Journal, uh, um, I write a column, a monthly column for, for them. Um, Trish will, you know, in, in these, um, all my magazine work, Trish will, uh, provide, um, uh, either artwork or, or, uh, or, a, a photograph, a photograph. So we work together on that. Um, there are a couple of smaller magazines that now and then, uh, I'll, I'll give them an article. And then I, I guess I have my blog, uh, which, which is free, uh, and, and that's, um, uh, Forgotten Trout dot wordpress.com or you which can is, just go to my web, website which is yeah. really good bob I, I think you're doing a great job i think you're kind of self-critical about you know not keeping up on it but i i read it uh or read some of it and i think it's wonderful writing and if that's reflective of your books then uh the, the blog oh, is, uh, is very well it's polished so uh, i think anyone should check that out and uh, but you know, Bob, we have taken a lot of time, but I'm, I feel like we've also accomplished a lot. We've been able to uncover who you Good. are as a person. We've been able to have you tell some great stories, and I just want to thank you so much for joining us because I'm trying to make this a successful podcast, and I and I want to and I believe that you you've done a great job to to enhance it. And so, thank you for your time. Well, look, I, I appreciate the kind words, uh, and I look, I thank you for you know letting me um, uh, kind of speak with your with your audience. Uh, it's been a lot of fun, uh, and maybe we'll do it again. We will, Bob. Thank you for your time. All right, take care. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for joining us for this intimate discussion, and thank you for listening to Flyline Podcast. A new Flyline podcast episode will be released every two weeks on Tuesdays, so be sure to come back to meet our next famous guest. Until then, this is Michael Jones. Flyline podcast is a product of Riverside FM.